Good morning. Good to see you all. Um, let's pray. Father, please come and speak to us from your word. Lord, we've gathered to you, not to one another, not to a band, not to a speaker. We've gathered to you and ask that you'd come and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to be reading from Paul's letter to Timothy, his second letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul's final words before he left this world. He wrote to one of the sons, his sons in the faith, Timothy, and gave him some instructions. We're going to read them together. If you've if you ever handed over major responsibility in work or transition from one area to another, you know there's, there's ways of doing it well, there's ways of doing it badly. And you just think, oh, I've made a mess, but that's the next guy's problem. Let's move on. Um, the Apostle Paul in this letter to Timothy, only just a few pages long, it contains many of the, the, the core pillars of what makes the Apostle Paul tick. The Apostle Paul was a man who planted many churches in the New Testament and wrote much of the New Testament himself to encourage those churches. And in this letter, he's telling his son, this is what really counts. And it contains what I think some, sometimes is referred to as fire hydrant theology. There's just a lot in here. He starts by talking about the Holy Spirit, fan into flame, the gift of God in you that is yours as a result of the laying on of hands. Uh, he reminds Timothy that we've not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of sonship, of self-control, of love. He talks about the importance of suffering and the need for the Christian to endure. But then also he speaks about the reality of the final judgment. He says that one day we will all of us stand before Jesus. And it's that that we're going to be focusing on together this morning. Uh, so let's read 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 to 8. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time's coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. The first thing we observe in what, we, what I read is the, the Apostle Paul's conviction about where history's headed, what all of this is for. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who is the judge of the living and of the dead and by his kingdom, his appearing. He says there's a purpose to everything. In this short letter alone, there's over eight mentions to the return of Jesus and of the final judgment. The final judgment, that's a fun topic for a Sunday morning, isn't it? The return of Jesus, him coming to judge the living and the dead. Depending on what you think human history is about, you de decides how you live your life. Uh, there's some people who would think that history is it's all meaningless. There's no purpose to anything. 
history or the human life, as Shakespeare put it, is a tale told by an idiot full of noise and fury, devoid of all meaning. The life's just meaningless. There's no purpose to anything. Another way of expressing things is that, no, no, life history is heading somewhere. It's the story of human progress. We are getting better. Or some people would say, no, human history just repeats itself. It's a circle that goes over and over again. But the Apostle Paul's convinced history is about this, that it's heading towards the appearance, the return of Jesus. Now, in the previous weeks, looking at the creed, as we had it read to us, we've been looking at the person of Jesus. We've talked about Jesus, the eternal Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. We've looked at Jesus, the one who came for our salvation, Jesus, the Savior. We've seen Jesus, the one who was crucified and resurrected last week, Jesus, the one who's ascended and exalted. This week, Jesus, the judge. This is how the creed puts it in what we, uh, we had read to us. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. The significance of that day in the Bible can't be overstated from the beginning. And, and human beings, uh, the human race is full from grace. And ever since, there's an anticipation of what's to come. That there will be this moment, Armageddon, the end of the world, a, a final battle between good and evil where evil will finally be defeated, where Jesus the King will come and rule and reign forever. The old uh, fiery German monk from the 16th century, Martin Luther, he, he was known for saying, I have only two days in my calendar, this day and that day. And every day he lived, he lived with that day in his mind. We know what it's like to have a big event on our mind, a test that's coming up that focuses the attention, causes us to study, got to plan for a particular challenge, got to make sure I eat the right foods so that I'm ready when the day comes, got to prepare for the interview, got to keep practicing and driving so that, you know, hopefully it will pay off and I'll pass my test. Here's what the Bible says about the day of judgment or judgment. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5, it says, Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time, wait until the Lord comes, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and he will expose the motives of the heart. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 10, it says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of, of Christ. Typos, not, permit, not permitting today. Um, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Acts 17, 31 the Apostle Paul says, He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, People are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. I can see you all looking really happy at this idea. The reality is people, we don't talk much about judgment. We don't think much about the end of the world. It's not, a, I think in the past week when I've been telling people, I'm speaking on judgment this Sunday. Uh, most people have said, oh, cheery one then, or good luck with that, or words to that effect. Why is it that we're not too excited about this reality? Why is it that judgment is not something that we, we spend much time thinking about or talking about? Well, there's a few reasons. One is that we don't like being judged. Being judged is severe and harsh. Normally, though, we don't like it because... We're not convinced that the person who's judging us has either our best interests, interests at heart or knows the full picture. We don't, know, we don't believe that the judge can be trusted. 
Sometimes uh, in the past, my, my kids have come to me and, and have asked me to you know, reside as judge over a case of who gets the last biscuit because he said he was going to have it and he said, no, it's my biscuit. And, and as judge, I often do uh, the, the wisest thing I know how and just say, I'll take the biscuit and eat it. And they howl at the injustice of the situation. And so for them, judgment is not something to be welcomed because they don't trust the judge. Another reason we don't like the idea of judgment is because if we're honest, for a lot of us raised in this society, we're taught or we're told to think that judgment is something, well, it sounds like something that was invented in the Middle Ages to help keep the peasants in line. The threat or warning of judgment at the end sounds maybe exactly like what Marx was talking about when he said religion is just the, the drug of the masses used to keep people con under control. People wave the judgment stick in order to get people to obey, and so we think, be wary of anyone who talks about judgment. Another reason, perhaps, we don't like judgment is that, if we're honest, we're worried how it will turn out for us. We're not sure how it's going to go down. We think we're doing all right. We think we're trying our best. But we know that when judgment comes, it's often the people in power who come off the least well. And in our society particularly, we are those in power. We're those with the wealth. So judgment doesn't always seem like an exciting reality for us. But the Apostle Paul felt differently about judgment. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me on that day. His language sounds like or seems to suggest that he is looking forward to that day. He's eager. He's certainly got that day in his mind. And far from being something that terrifies him, he's anticipating it. For the Apostle Paul, he thinks that the last judgment is a source of comfort. And indeed, for anyone who values justice, judgment can be not just comforting, but beautiful. Now, the, the cry of, it's not fair, it, it rings out in our home on a regular basis. Not because we're a particularly unjust household, but because my kids, from no matter how old we are, we all know we're built with this ingrained sense of justice, that life ought to be fair. We cry out for justice. There's something in our bones that longs for it. And to long for justice, therefore, is to welcome judgment. It's to believe that judgment isn't a bad thing. You see, at its heart, at its root, to bring judgment is to, cl is to clean something. Is to separate the, the light from the darkness or the dirt from the clean. Every time you wash your clothes, you are performing an act of judgment. We want the dirt gone, we're judging it, and we're wanting the return of the clean. To bring judgment is to heal, is to restore that which is broken. When you go to the doctors with a broken arm, you ask him to judge it and put it back to how it's meant to be. We long for the things that are broken in the world and the things that are broken in our lives to be repaired. A few weeks ago, a, a car got smashed into overnight outside this building, and in the morning we phoned the relevant people and, and got the broken car taken away and in the in the days and, and weeks that followed I got to know the lady who was whose car it was and she was trying to find out information what happened to my car overnight someone smashed into it and so we were talking to her about her insurance company and their refusal to pay out and can we get a reference number or a crime number she's longing for justice it's not fair something's broken 
There's a cry for justice in her. To long for justice is to invite and to welcome judgment. And when properly understood, judgment is a beautiful thing. Uh, We have a a video I want to show a lady who lives in Brighton who was a victim uh, and her, her and her family... Oh, hello. Her and her family were victims of the Rwandan genocide, a genocide in which in a course of just three months, 800,000 people were killed. And this is what she comes to observe about judgment. The truth of what, uh, that God brings justice and judgment is why I believe. It is a beautiful thing to long for justice and in that to welcome the judgment of God in the world. Martin Luther King, the the civil rights activist, was known for saying that the arc of human history, the arc of human history, where things are going, the arc of human history bends towards justice. The arc of human history bends towards justice, which is a beautiful statement. Uh, Barack Obama was particularly fond of this statement, and he had it woven into a rug in the Oval Office in the White House. So every day as he presided over the, the country, making the judgments that he did, he was reminded the arc of human history bends towards justice. We talk like that about history, like it's heading somewhere. We talk about people, or we were sometimes advised or cautioned, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. You don't want history to judge you harshly. All of those statements and ideas come from this idea that history is heading somewhere. There's an arc and it's bending towards justice. Don't be on the wrong side of justice. The question I want to ask though is, how did Martin Luther King know that? How can we be confident that justice will prevail in our land on the earth How can we have any reason to believe not only that it will, but but the belief that it should, that justice should come? See, Martin Luther King's belief expresses what we probably all wish were the case. We all would love to live in a world where the abused get justice for what's done to them. Where the Mugabes and the Stalins and the Hitlers and the Henry VIII's and the Genghis Khan's of the world will be made to answer for their crimes That would be an amazing world to live in. But the fact that we wish that that was the world that we lived in says nothing about whether or not we live in that world, whether or not that is the actual world. I could wish I could fly. I could wish it very strongly. But if I jump off the building here, I won't fly. I'll just die. Because what we wish a reality to be doesn't alter the reality from something that it is. It seems to me that in a world and a universe where there is no God, there is no justice either. There's no peace for victims. There's no guarantee that things will turn out right. There's there's no no sure hope that human history will arc towards justice eventually. Why would there be? The physicist and atheist professor, a man named Lawrence Krauss, says this, He says, the picture that science presents to us is uncomfortable because what we have learned is that we are more insignificant than we could ever have imagined. And in addition, it turns out that the future is miserable. So there's two different ways of seeing the world, two different ways of seeing the future. Martin Luther King's history will arc towards justice. Or Lawrence Krauss's, no, the future is miserable. 
It will arc towards misery and death and chaos because that's where everything is headed. We've come from chaos. We'll return from chaos, he says. Everything else in between is perhaps just an illusion or it's perhaps just the best we can hope for. But it's not right or wrong or good or bad. It's not evil. It just is, he would say. So my question this morning for us is, is life a comedy or a tragedy? Is life a comedy or a tragedy? Not is it sad or is it funny, but in terms of the way that those categories are used in literature. Do things end well? Is it a comedy or do things end badly? In Shakespeare's plays, every one of them that are considered comedies end in weddings. In his plays that are tragedies, they end with dead bodies on the floor. So comedies end well, tragedies end badly. In fact, we have these, these masks from the theater, the comedy and the tragedy. The comedy is shaped like a smile, the tra tragedy is shaped like a frown. Frown, tragedy. If there's no God, there's no meaning, there's no justice, there's no happily ever after, in which case life is a tragedy. We go up, we have our health, we have our life, we have our moment in the sun, we hopefully might make some money, we might have a nice car, we might get a nice house, and then no matter how long we can prolong it, we know eventually it ends at the grave. It's over. It's a tragedy. And our advertising agencies play on this. They know this, don't they? Ten things to do before you die. Or a thousand books to read before you kick the bucket. A thousand places you must visit before you die. Before, boom, the tragedy of death takes over. The trouble is, that creates an enormous amount of anxiety. I mean, what if I can't read a thousand books? What if I can't visit all of those places? What if I can't do those things I must do before I die? What if I'm unhappy in this job? What if I'm unhappy in life or unfulfilled in life? What if I'm married to someone I don't like or don't get on with? What that does is it creates then in us an anxiety. If this is the best I can get, if I'm at the top of the frown, I've got to work hard to, to try to squeeze all of the goodness out of life. I've got to perhaps chop and change and try new cars and new spouses and new job because this is the best it's going to be. And if I don't get fulfillment here, then what is life? It just ends at the grave. Life is a tragedy. And so we have to do everything we can before they eventually throw mud on us or put us in the incinerator. Because we know that it's all downhill from here on, folks. Glenn Scrivener, the, the Christian writer and speaker, he says this, We are the flotsam of a cosmic explosion and biological survival machines. We are wet robots clinging to an insignificant rock, hurtling through a meaningless universe towards eternal extinction. Still, all that being said, the new flavored latte from Starbucks is incredible. And have you tried hot yoga? We're renovating the kitchen too, so, you know, that's nice. Tragedy. Life's a frowning face. And is that what's undergirding Paul's theology? Is that basically why he tell, what he tells Paul? Life's going to get hard. You're going to die. You're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So get everything you can out of life before it's over. Is the idea of the eternal judgment or the last judgment, is that basically just a Christian replacement for death? 
since things are going to end badly at judgment, we may as well try to live as we can. But listen instead to what he says. Paul says to Timothy, teach with patience, complete patience. He says, endure suffering. He says, do the work of an evangelist. He even says this, I am being poured out like a drink. I'm being poured out. My life is being spent. He says, I'm dying. In other words, the instructions he gives to Timothy are not, there's a judgment coming, so do everything you can to get happy. He says, there's a judgment coming, so endure. Have patience, work, pour yourself out in service to others. He expresses something that, that, that comes from a different way of seeing the world. It's very different from a tragic view of life. A tragic view of life that would tell you, maximize your pleasure now. Buy it on credit now. You're going to burn. It's all going to burn. Take everything you can. Read the books. Have the experiences. Get the spouses. Do whatever you can because it's all going to burn. Very different from what the Apostle Paul's telling uh, Timothy to do here. And the reason for that is because for the Apostle Paul, life is a comedy. What Martin Luther King said, that the arc of human history bends towards justice. What the Apostle Paul says, that we will all of us stand before a final judgment and come from the same soil, the same root. Life is a comedy. He doesn't say life is a, like the emoji, the laugh out loud face. It's not a crying with laughter face. Life isn't funny. It's not a joke, but it does end well. That's his conviction. That's what he's clinging on to. He says in verse 8, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, that the righteous judge will award to me, not just to me, he says, but to all who've longed for Jesus' appearing. In other words, no matter how hard things get, no matter how bad things are now, they end well. Therefore, he says, Therefore, in life, we can go down in life. We can serve. We can die to our needs and our wants and our appetites for forgiveness and for fulfillment. We can die to those things. More than that, we can be poured out in the service of others for the sake of others. We can live with pain. We can endure disappointment and heartbreak we can go to the grave unfulfilled without ever trying hot yoga or the latest latte at Starbucks. We can stoop because we know that at the end, we will be lifted up. There will be a wedding. There will be a feast. There will be a celebration. There will be a banquet for all those of us who, Paul says, have longed for his appearing longed for him to come there is a reward there's a final judgment where everything that's in the dark will be brought out people will see it the evil and wickedness in the world will be exposed the brokenness will be repaired and healed every tear will be wiped away from our eyes that's Paul's hope that's what he thinks he clings on to as a certainty he says because of that we can endure I'm reading a book at the moment about a lady called Esther Kim from South Korea during World War II when um, the Japanese occupied her country and, and Christians were forced 
to bow before the altars of foreign gods, bow before idols. And the story is her story of how she endured, and she chose instead to not bow to the gods around her, but to bow only to Jesus. And as a result of that, to face just the worst kind of suffering and opposition and hardship that we could ever imagine. And yet she chose it. Not with a smile, but she chose it. She endured it because she knew no matter how bad things are here, it gets better. It's better from here on in, folks. The best is always yet to come. And that's not just her story. It's the story of countless Christians all over the world. I think, frankly, we insult many parts of our church around the world as Christians in the West because we've become so entrapped and entrenched in our way of thinking and living. We expect so much comfort, so much fulfillment now. I need to be in a job that satisfies me in every way. I need to have perfect relationships. I need to be part of a perfect church. Everything needs to be awesome, as the Lego movie would tell us. Everything must be awesome, because if it isn't now, we've wasted our lives. You, you try living that message in North Korea, or in Iran, or in the Demo Democratic Republic of Congo as a Christian. We had uh, a friend of ours, Moshtaba, speaking here a few months ago. He's coming back in a couple of weeks. But his story was that from the age of 19, essentially, to 25, he was in prison. Much of it in solitary confinement because he's a Christian. His crime, I believe in Jesus, that he's the hope of the world. And us in the West, we want our church services to entertain us. And the coffee must be fantastic. And the groups must be very dynamic and diverse. And there must be a real reason to get me out of the house in the middle of winter to come and study the Bible with other Christians. And if I have to travel for more than half an hour to be with church, forget it. I'll just watch stuff on the internet. Oh, don't you see how we become so captive to this world and its way of thinking and approaching life? We think, this is a tragedy. I've got to get everything I can now because I'm going to die and it's going to be over. That's not a Christian way of thinking. It's not a Christian way of living. See, if Lawrence Krauss's atheism offers us a, a miserable ever after, then the Christian story offers us the world's best happily ever after. But the thing about the Christian message is it isn't just a fairy tale. It's based on, grounded on events in history that are repeated in people's lives ever since that first resurrection and those first encounters with Jesus. Christians ever since the world over have known Jesus alive and among them. J.R. Tolkien, the writer of the, the Lord of the Rings, he said, There is no tale ever told that men would rather find out was true than the Christian message. And he says that, in fact, there is no tale ever told that so many skeptical people, men and women the world over, have come to find to be true. But where does Paul's confidence come from? It comes from this in verse 8, a word that we, we kind of just skipped over and thought, well, that, that's what Paul said. He says, there's a crown laid up for me, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me. Paul's confidence comes from this word, that the judge is a righteous judge. You know, the reason we often fear judgment is because of who the judge is. We're used to being judged harshly by harsh bosses, or by Ofsted's criteria, or by friends who don't take in the whole picture of our lives. 
who don't give us the benefit of the doubt. But Jesus is described as the righteous judge. The word righteous here means a couple of things. It means, firstly, that he's going to get it right. He's the righteous judge. His judgment will be right. But it's also a comment on the character of the judge, that he's a righteous judge. In the Old Testament story um, of the Israelites in the, in the desert, the leader of the people, Moses, pleads with God for God to show him his glory. And God says to Moses, I will, I will pass before you. And you'll, you'll glimpse my back. You'll see my glory. He reveals his glory to him in this statement in Exodus 34. He says, he, it says, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming this, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. What an amazing judge. Abounding instead. I mean, Moses says to God, show me your glory. And he says, my glory is this. I'm compassionate and gracious. I don't know about you, but if someone said to me, you know, impress me. Show me how mighty and strong you are. You know, my, my boys know how to do this. They sit around the dinner table like this. Although they don't really know how to do it because they're, they're like Toby who's three. So he's just like, tries to impress me with his biceps. Show me your strength, Moses says to God. And God says, compassionate and gracious, abounding in love, maintaining love, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That's my power. In other words, I'm so secure in who I am, so comfortable in my skin as God, I overflow with loving kindness and faithfulness towards people, he says. But the statement doesn't finish there because he says, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. And we think it was all going so well, God. See, we love judgment when we're the victim. Uh, Jackie from Rwanda loves, needs, believes and, and appreciates judgment as a gift when she's aware of how much of a victim she is. I've sat with people before whose main problem with God has been judgment, but not in the way that I thought. I thought it was going to be, I can't believe in a God who judges people. The main thought was, how can I believe in a God who doesn't punish wickedness and sin? And it was only when I told her about Jesus as judge, she finally realized, I want to worship that God. I want to follow a God like that. I want to believe and I want to live in a world where genocide and abuse doesn't just end at the grave and just people go there for that. Let's pretend it never happened. Let's just carry on. God judges sin. And we like the idea of that when we're the victim. But part of why I think we bristle and part of why you didn't get very excited when I said we're talking about judgment today is because more often than not, we're aware of the fact that we're not perfect. We're aware that if judgment was to be unveiled, unleashed on us, we probably wouldn't turn out very well. And actually, there's a few pages before Paul writing this. He reveals perhaps why it is that the idea of judgment for him isn't a terrible thing. In 1 Timothy, he says, Jesus came for the sinners of whom I'm the worst. He labels himself among those that Jesus came for. 
He says, I'm the worst of sinners. And yet still, he has confidence and excitement about the final judgment. Why? I mean, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul's early existence, early interaction with Christianity was that he was trying to stamp it out. He was trying to eradicate it. I mean, imagine if Paul succeeded. We'd all have died and been faced before the judgment seat of God and God would have said, what did you do about my son Jesus? And we'd have said, I never heard of him because Saul of Tarsus stamped the movement out in the very beginning. That would have been a bad, bad day for God and for Saul of Tarsus. But that isn't what happened. Saul of Tarsus, committed as he was to stamping out the Christian message, met with the risen Lord Jesus, received forgiveness from the risen Lord Jesus. This is what he says in 1 Timothy. He says that Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the, I am the foremost. Jesus came to save sinners. And in Hebrews chapter 4, it says this, that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and who is able in every respect, who's been tempted in every respect as we have been tempted and yet is without sin. Therefore, as a result of him, we can approach the throne with confidence, knowing that we will receive mercy. We will find grace in our time of need. We will receive forgiveness. That's what he offers. So we proclaim as a church that we believe in the risen Lord Jesus and that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. The Jesus who is the eternal one of God is the Jesus who came into the world to save, is the Jesus who was crucified and then was raised to life. And as a result of that, his death and resurrection, as a result of that, he will come again to judge the living and the dead and his judgment will be a righteous judgment. And for all those of us who put our hope in him, who ask him to be our judge, he will pardon us for our sin. That is why we can have confidence because life is not a tragedy. It is a comedy. That no matter how bad things are now, we know this is as bad as it gets. Let's pray together.